My name is Pastor Mike Landsman, and this is the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ. This podcast is taken from my weekly Sunday morning sermons. I pray that as you listen to them, they will be a blessing to you and strengthen you in your walk with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's what we have for today. It is good to be back again with you, uh, especially on this Reformation Sunday. Uh, This morning we'll be considering Psalm 1. Uh, It would be beneficial for you to open up your Bible uh, to that book. Uh, If you're unfamiliar with with the Word of God or with Scripture, if you just open up your Bible in half, it generally lands in the book of Psalms. And uh, if you're looking for it on your phone, Psalm starts with a P and not an S. Uh, If you're a note taker or just simply someone who wants to kind of know where this is going, I have three points today. Uh, Jesus Christ, the blessed way. Uh, Cursed are those who walk out of the way. And then the blessed are known by Jesus and know Jesus. And if you are looking for a title or a big idea, something to kind of put in your pocket for later, the blessed are known by Jesus and know Jesus. Uh, Allow me a few moments uh, before the sermon really kicks off to kind of provide a little historical background to the book of Psalms. Uh, This will kind of help us to to understand what role Psalm 1 is playing in in the Bible. So many of you will be aware that the Psalter uh, is arranged into five sections. Uh, It was arranged to kind of retell the biblical story uh, in poetic or worshipful form. Uh, So at the beginning of the book of Psalm, we should expect there to be kind of garden or Edenic themes. Uh, And at the end of the book of Psalms, we'll expect it to be kind of unceasing praise, kind of pointing us towards the eschaton. Uh, The church father, Augustine, believed that the center of the book of Psalms was Psalm 73, 28, which reads, It is good for me to cleave to God. Uh, What he meant by this as the center was that all the book of Psalms is really preparing us to cling to God in hope. And as we look towards the eschaton, that's what we're really doing. We're clinging to God in hope. Um, That our restless heart, the longings of our soul, find their rest in clinging to God. Our God is not far off, but near to us. In the Psalms, you will also find a mirror for your restless heart. If you spend any amount of time reading the Psalms, uh, you'll find the longings and pinings of your soul in these pages. Uh, The way that us read the book of Psalms, we read this book particularly to learn something about God and learn something about ourselves. Uh, We read the Psalms in order to hear anew God's wonderful story, but put forth in poetry. What we'll expect then as we turn to Psalm 1 uh, is sort of a microcosm of the Bible. Sort of a, a really short, condensed version of the whole of Scripture, but in poetry. Uh, So we'll see something of the beginning, something of the end, and something of the turntables of time, Christ himself. Uh, Now that I've kind of introduced the psalm a little bit, we'll get into the sermon itself. It's been a great year for walkers. Uh, This past August, there was a New York Times article that's titled, Walking is In, and Yes, It's Exercise. Uh, The news article explored a trend in golfing toward opting away from the golf cart and for walking the course. Bob Bullis, a 72-year-old golfer, states in the article simply, walking is cool again. Uh, And this isn't anecdotal. Statistics have argued that walking is up 300% this past year. Walking experts 
people who weigh in on things like the sedentary activities of humans, uh, suggest that the pandemic might be one of the main contributions for this upswing. I myself walked nearly every day this past year. You don't have to be impressed by that. In a way, walking is a very humanizing activity. With each step, your body reminds you of the energy you expend, you subject yourself to the elements of the world, your limbs and frame weigh you down. With each whizzing car that moves by, you recognize your own limitations that you can't get where you're going any faster than your body allows. Most people, when they set off for a walk, they know exactly where they are going. Most mornings when I walk, I know exactly how far I'm going to go. And my dog, in fact, knows exactly where to turn around before we even get there. He knows the path. When we set off to walk, we know where we are going. What we don't often recognize is how things like walks are formational. Walking each morning has become something of a habit. And this walk itself, it changes me. It slows life down. It forces me to think. It gets the blood flowing. Scripture often speaks of a walk or a path. In Psalm 1 we are introduced to two paths, that of the blessed and that of the wicked. Two walks, really. We are also given two illustrations of these paths, a tree planted by a river and the discarded plants of the chaff. Finally, we are given the end of the walk, the destiny of these two ways, where it's going. In other words, Psalm 1 shows us two walks down the one path we are oriented toward God. We delight in Him, our ways prosper, and we are known by the Lord. Down the other path, we are oriented toward the world, we reject God and are rejected by Him. But we also know ourselves. There are mornings that I do not get up to walk. There are days that we do not walk down the path the Lord has set out for us. There are moments in our lives where we reject what God has given us. There are days where we feel like God has rejected us. There are days where our walking feels a lot more like crawling. And I think this passage offers some hope for the reality of the Christian life too. So let us turn to consider the first part of the passage now, verses 1 to 3. I'll read, I'll read it for us, uh, so please follow along in your Bible. Uh, blessed are they that walk in the way. Uh, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. In the introduction, I noted that Psalm 1 is partially Edenic, or it points us backward to the Garden of Eden. It is also partially forward-looking, that it points us to the end of the Bible. Thus, we do see in this passage our forefather, Adam, and what his calling was to be. His place in the Garden was wonderful. In Genesis 2, we are told that there was a river that flowed from Eden, nourishing it. Life was good. Adam was planted by the river and was set there to prosper. Like the tree, he was to bear fruit in season and out of season. What was set before Adam in Genesis 1 and 2 was an opportunity to walk with the Lord each day. 
And just as his spiritual life would flourish before God, the garden around him and all within it would flourish and expand around the river. All that he did was set to prosper. Of course, we are aware of the story. Adam failed in his quest. He was not to take in the counsel of the serpent. He was not to take the word of the serpent, but rather to expel the serpent from the garden. And in doing so, demonstrate that he had meditated on the instruction of the Lord. In Psalm 1, we are also biblically pointed forward to Christ. And scripture really gives us this precedence to interpret Psalm 1 in this manner. Uh, And the best way to really read your Bible is to allow other passages of the Bible to inform how you read other sections. So kind of strengthen your reading of the Bible within the Bible itself. So in 1 Corinthians 15.47, we are pointed to the two men of scripture, Adam and Christ. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. And the second man is from heaven, Christ. In Psalm 1, as the great German reformer Martin Luther suggests, the blessed man, in verse 1, is Jesus Christ. In these two men, we have contrasted the two paths of humanity. Jesus Christ, the blessed man. If we inspected each part of verses 1 to 3, we could easily tie them to Jesus' life. The four actions of walking, standing, sitting, and delighting. When Jesus was in the wilderness, he did not take in the counsel of the devil to exalt himself, but rather overcame temptation by walking in the will of his Father. He did not listen to the counsel of the wicked. Nor did he stand in the path of sinners. To put this in the clearest manner, Jesus was not a sinner. The way of sinners is the very life of the ungodly. Jesus did take upon himself our sin, but he was not a sinner. His path was not one of sin. Jesus also did not sit in the seat of scoffers. This requires some processing. Uh, We know that Jesus did associate with sinners. But what is clear is that in taking up his position in the world, Jesus did not succumb to the influences of the world. When one sits, just as you are now, you take upon yourselves the posture of submission. A desire to listen, a desire to learn, a willingness to be influenced. But in particular, this is a seat of scoffers. So Jesus did not take the influence of the world and reject God and reject his position. He did not scoff. He did not mock the things of God. Jesus also delighted in the things of God. When Jesus was a child during the festival of Passover, as we see in Luke 2... He stays behind at his father's temple to contemplate the things of God with the religious teachers. This is just one instance of Jesus delighting in the things of God. So we have Jesus Christ is the blessed man of Psalm 1 and Adam really is the wicked man of Psalm 1. These are the two groups of people in the Bible. Those who relate to Adam and Adam's sin and those who relate to Christ and Christ's victory over sin. The blessed are known by Jesus and know Jesus. And scripture really provides us itself with a beautiful illustration of the blessed man in Psalm as being like a tree that is planted by a river. This tree flourishes, it bears fruit, and it prospers. Two things I want to note initially about this set of verses. The first is to clarify what scripture means by meditating on the law of the Lord day and night. 
I want to emphasize that this meditation of the law of the Lord is not placing a burden upon you as the people of God to read scripture every moment of your day. Uh, It is not that. Rather, it is a description of one whose life is so influenced by the word of God that their engagements with the world are filtered through the lens of scripture. They know God's word so well that they live out the word of God. They have reflected on how scripture impacts their comings and their goings. This would have been particularly a call for those to listen to the word being exposited in the synagogue, in the Jewish synagogue. So the first thing is to know is that verse 2 is not a legalistic burden, but rather the commending of a whole worldview that a Christian is called to develop their mind and their heart toward God. The best way to view this verse and place it in kind of a modern context would be to seek to be shaped by the preaching of the Word of God, as Reverend Landsman and others preached to you. To think through their preaching and, and check it with Scripture, And to see how God desires that you serve him in everything that you do. The second thing is to address the idea of prospering. This verse needs to be balanced against the rest of scripture. We know that the wicked prosper in this life. Uh, We need to look no further than whose coffers are being expanded during this momentary economic inflation. The prosperity that scripture speaks of more often than not is more closely related to with the end of the Bible and not this current moment. In other words, it is a blessing that is looking toward the end of all things, and we will pick this up in our third point. So, The first point of the sermon is Jesus Christ is the blessed way. The second point of the sermon is cursed are the, those who walk out of the way. Allow me to read verse 4 for us. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. If we recall from the first point, the wicked are those who have kinship with Adam. In contrast with the beautiful illustration of the tree planted by the the stream is a chaff that the wind drives away. What is chaff? Well, chaff is typically considered the outer coverings of grain and in ancient times grain would be crushed or threshed or trampled in order to separate the grain from this outer covering. And then eventually, to get this, kind of the lingering pieces of the chaff off of the grain, the grain would be tossed into the air. And the heavier grain would fall to the ground, but the chaff would be lifted off by the wind and carried away. This imagery of chaff is utilized all over scripture. In Job 21, Job describes the wicked as chaff. He says, how often are they like straw before the wind, like chaff swept away by a gale. In Matthew 3, John the Baptist describes Jesus Christ's activity through chaff. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So our two plant-based illustrations, so if you're a vegan you should be loving this. Uh, The blessed are like a tree planted by a water yielding fruit. The wicked are like a chaff that is swept away by the wind. The blessed remain, the wicked are carried off. Adam ultimately takes the wicked, the path of the wicked, being expelled from the Garden of Eden. He is carried away, going from standing next to the river that flowed from Eden to being expelled. He is like chaff. This is an illustration for us of our two paths. Blessed are they that walk with Jesus Christ, 
for they are like a tree planted by a stream. Cursed are they that walk away from Jesus Christ, for they are like a chaff which the wind blows away. In the introduction to this sermon, I talked briefly about walking as formational. In other words, that the things we do, the people we surround ourselves with, the context of our lives, and the content of our lives are all shaping us in various ways. Hence why scripture in the first portion of the psalm really talks about the life of the Christian and their activity, walking, sitting, standing, and delighting. There is a recognition from the Psalter that our lives are in some way shaped by the things that we are doing. And in some way they demonstrate who we are. This is borne out in clinical psychology too. Uh, new research in the Journal of Social, Psychological, and Personality Science has been evaluating theories related to why people become Christians and why people become atheists. Humanly speaking. Again, I don't want to reduce uh, these things to human factors. We know that the Holy Spirit regenerates our hearts, and that is why we love and adore our Savior. But humanly speaking, this research looked at over a thousand people in the U.S. and considered things like, like secularization, uh, in other words, how does culture affect our relationship with God, a cognitive byproduct, so how does one become religious or an atheist through thinking or reflection, and then dual inheritance factors, such as can one's response to religion be traced back to the content and context of their lives. So three factors are what they looked at. Secularism is one group more logical and the lives of religious people. So we could describe them as culture, thinking, and, uh, and our lives. So what did they conclude, this uh, scientific journal? Well, they found two things highly influential. They said the first was the extent to which one's parents, during one's childhood, sincerely practiced their faith and involved the child in that faith. This includes things like attending religious services, as you guys are right now, living morally upright lives outside of the church, making personal sacrifices to practice one's faith and involvement in the religious community. And the second thing they found highly influential was that when individuals... Uh, reflected on atheism, they typically steered toward atheism only when those individuals did not have a credible faith community that they belonged to. To put it differently, low exposure to religion was one of the main contributing factors to those turning away from religion. So if you're a parent here today and you are listening to this, the task ahead of you is pretty simple. The two best things for you to do for the faith of your child is to ardently and honestly practice your love for Jesus with them and with the community of the church. If you are not a parent, perhaps you are married and don't have kids, or you're single or you're a grandparent, one of the best ways for you to contribute to the life of your church is, humanly speaking, is to ardently and honestly participate in your church community. It is one of the best ways that you can express Jesus' love to those who are here. And for all of us, it is a helpful reminder that the context and content in which we live is very important. These four actions of walking, standing, sitting, and delighting, these are the actions of our lives. These are the, the kind of formative things that we are doing. And if we want to truly love other people, the best thing that we can do is to love them through the Lord. 
The third point of the sermon. The blessed are known by Jesus and know Jesus. Allow me to read our final verses, 5 and 6. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. There are really two questions that we need to sort through about this final portion of Psalm 1. What is verse 5 gesturing at? Uh, the wicked will not stand in judgment. What does this mean? Uh, and then the second question, what is special about the Lord knowing the way of the righteous? So the first question, why will the wicked not stand in judgment? Well, by this point in the passage, we are beginning to shift from our Edenic, or our, our garden themes, to the end of all things. So Psalm 1 is moving us from the beginning to the end of history. This history, of course, is centering on Jesus Christ. When verse 5 here states that the wicked will not stand in judgment, it is pointing us to the end of all things. And this is really clarified by the second half of the verse. The wicked will be judged by the righteous. They will not stand with them, but be judged by them. Christ will be manifest before the world in some way in his two natures as both God and man at the end of all things. The wicked will see him simply as a man and they will have their judgment carried out against him. The blessed they will see in Christ's human form, the Son of God. As Matthew 5, 8 states, Blessed are the clean of heart, because they shall see God. In the judgment, the wicked will see their judge. The blessed will see their Savior. And this judgment that Christ carries out will be accompanied by the judgment of the world by Christians. This is what we have being described in verse 5. And it is what Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 6, 2. Do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? In Revelation 2, 25-26, Christ hints at Christian sharing in Christ's authority over all nations. Thus, in verse 5, is informing us that the wicked will not take part in this act of judgment. But in fact, they will be the ones who are judged. Moreover, none of the wicked will be found among God's people. Now we turn our attention to the second question. What is special about the Lord knowing the way of the righteous? Well, the word knowing in scripture is a, a something of a biblical idiom. It describes a deeply intimate and personal relationship. Often scripture utilizes knowing to describe even a sexual relationship because of the intimacy of the event. For example, in Genesis 4.1, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. Scripture is really replete with these examples of knowing being utilized to describe this deep and intimate relationship. Scripture also commends to us this deep and intimate relationship with God. Hence in John 17.1, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Or 1 Corinthians 8.13, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Thus, when we reflect on verse 6, it is not that God does not have knowledge of the activities of the wicked. We want to affirm that God is all-knowing, or the fancy theological word, he is omniscient. God knows all things. But rather in verse 6, when it talks about God knowing the path of the righteous, 
He is expressing a deep and intimate knowledge of his people. That his knowledge of us, us here today, is profoundly personal. Our God is not far from us, but he is near to us. As Jesus states elsewhere, I know my own and my own know me. In other words, that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit knows so intimately the path of the righteous that he would declare that he is our God and we are his people. Earlier in the sermon I mentioned that I would come back to the idea of prosperity. We know that sometimes wicked people on this earth prosper. When scripture points us to the prosperity of God's people, yes, sometimes this is earthly prosperity. But more often than not, it is the prosperity of God's eternal blessing. The blessed in Psalm 1 prosper eternally as those who are planted by the tree of eternal life. As the start of Revelation 22 reads, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were healing of the nations. No longer there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. This is the tree and river depicted in Psalm 1. The people of God will be rich participants in this heavenly city. We will rest under the tree that is healing the nations and eat of its food and drink of the river of life. If you are anything like me, you've arrived at this part of the sermon and you are starting to get a little uneasy. It might be the clock. Uneasy because you are aware that many days you are more like Adam than Christ. You are more like the wicked than the righteous. You acknowledge the degenerate tendencies in your heart and soul. Even the service this morning points us to acknowledge this with our confession of sin. We stated, we have grievously sinned against thee in thought, in word, and in deed. What does this passage have to offer us, us we sinners? Well, the answer is both simple and wonderfully rich. The blessed man, Jesus Christ, was sent to address this exact issue. We are incapable of being the blessed man of Psalm 1. And the Reformation was a great recovery of the truth that our faith was to be placed in Jesus Christ. That our daily lives are to no longer be oriented around guilt and shame, but oriented toward God in gratitude. In other words, that we, tr play, trust, uh, that we place our faith, we trust in the Lord, and this is what roots and allows our lives to flourish. It is not an attempt to earn our place in this garden. The tree planted by the river is secure. Someone else did the planting. And it is free to flourish, free to become exactly who it is created to be. The chaff is not secure. It is swept away. It is enslaved by the forces of the world and finds its supposed freedom in the wind. Those who believe in Jesus will be planted by the stream of living water. They will be given the Holy Spirit and they will have freedom in Christ. Brothers and sisters this morning, I want to encourage you. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, this is a story about you. 
But likewise, brothers and sisters, we deserve to stand with the wicked. We deserve to be the chaff blown away by the wind. But thankfully, as those who love our Savior and are loved by Him, the Blessed One has had mercy on us. It is not our deeds, it is not our words and actions that we cling to. We do not cling to going to church as that which saves us. But we cling to the great mercy of Jesus Christ. We cling to His life, His words, His actions. Rest in that hope, in that fact, in that truth. Allow me a few minutes, moments to conclude, conclude the sermon. I should probably take a drink of water. By pointing to some application. So in the beginning of the sermon I talked about walking as formative in some way. In Psalm 1 we are given two paths. The way of the blessed one and the way of the wicked. Uh, and two destinations. Eternal hell and eternal bliss. When you know who you belong to it changes the way you walk. Jesus Christ is the blessed way, and to walk with him is to be oriented toward eternity. And we have been given both a perfect Savior and a perfect image of how that looks. We might draw out briefly two points of application. And these mirror our earlier depictions of Christ as walking, standing, sitting, and delighting. And do these actions of the passage describe your participation in Christ's community, in Christ's church? Are you walking with Christ? This is not to burden you, but to redirect you to the illustration of the tree. The tree is secure in Christ and can therefore flourish by the river. Are you looking for your freedom and your security somewhere else than by the river? Are you standing with the faithful on Sunday mornings? Are you active in your church community? Are you seeking out fellow believers to learn and to be equipped by them? I mentioned briefly kind of the psychology behind that. Are you sitting under the preached word? Are you striving to be shaped by the preaching of God's word? Are your reflections on what is important shaped by scripture or by your Twitter feed or Facebook page? And then lastly, the second point is I want to encourage you to delight in God. I don't mean for this to sound so esoteric or abstract, um, but scripture commends this to us, especially the combinations of verse 3 and 6. The blessed people of God are those who know and are known by God. One of the early church fathers, Augustine, and I have no fear of bringing up church fathers given Reverend Landsman's enjoyment of these community of saints. But Augustine viewed meditation or contemplating on the Lord as a form of worship. Both here as an activity that the church can do today, but also something that we will get to do for all of eternity. He wrote, contemplation in fact is the reward of faith. A reward for which hearts are cleansed through faith. As it is written, cleansing their hearts through faith in Acts 15, 9. So we consider this briefly in the final part of the sermon in that the, those who are loved and known by God will see the face of the Lord and this is a beautiful act of contemplation. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If you have a few minutes, I'd ask you to go to gofundme.com slash Zion's Stone Church Repair Fund. We have some significant repair work that we need to do on our bell tower 
as well as some repair work due to a recent lightning strike. Anything you'd be able to help us out with, we would greatly appreciate it. If you'd like to get a hold of me or you have any questions about what you've heard, feel free to reach out at our Facebook page, Zion Stone UCC, or you can check us out on our website, zionstoneucc.com. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.